Thank you, Burns. My name is Martha, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Hi, everybody. I want to start by telling you what it's, uh, what it's like today. I got up about 6 o'clock this morning because I couldn't sleep because I was so nervous. I ordered breakfast, and I tried to choke down my breakfast, and I was not very successful because I was so nervous. And then I promptly went to the toilet, and I had diarrhea for about an hour before I came on down here. <laughs> That's, uh, that's what it's like. That's uh, recovery for today. Um, but I am real glad to be here. It's, a, it's, it's really an honor to, to get up and to be able to, or to try to be able to share with you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And I'm real grateful for Burns and uh, uh, the folks from, from IDAA for asking me to, to share with you. I'd like to tell you how I got here. Because um, AA or IDAA really were not on my list of the top ten organizations that I wanted to join when I was growing up and when I went to uh, medical school. But um, I came to this meeting, I guess, five years ago. It was the first uh, IDAA meeting that I came to in Chicago. And I remember when uh, Bill Daniels had all of us get up that night, like tonight will be, and the new members in shared just a piece of uh, how they got there. And I was absolutely scared to death. I could not imagine getting up in front of a group of uh, drunk doctors and saying anything about myself. But I got up there, and I was so overwhelmed. It was one of the most incredible feelings. I think there were only about 300 people at, at that meeting. And I understand that there are more than twice that many at this meeting. And it's, it's great to see this grow as time goes on because that's a lot of what the fellowship means uh, to me. But I was just, it was, it was awesome getting up in front of these people and, and being a part of that and thinking that out there were 300 drunk doctors. Now, where in the world would you find 300 drunk doctors together in a room and nobody was drinking? And it was just one of the most awesome and incredible experiences um, that I had, I had had at, at that point. It really stands out in, in my mind. But when I was born some 35 years ago in a little town called Fayetteville, Arkansas, I did uh, uh, not grow up with the purpose of, of being here. And I think you've heard a lot of people um, say that. My life, I think, was relatively normal in my childhood. And in, uh, uh, during the time that I was in grade school, my family life, I came from an uh, uh, upper-middle-class, uh, hard-working, very respectable pillar of the community type um, uh, family. And I ended up, needless to say, being at best sort of the black sheep uh, of that family. I don't remember a whole lot about my childhood. There are a couple of things that I remember that are real significant because they affected my life and impacted it dramatically, and they still do. For some reason, I got a couple of messages from my parents, and, and one of those messages was, big girls don't cry. And I don't think that my parents gave me that message intentionally. I really don't. But I got that message, and I lived my life that way. And that meant to me that I don't show you my feelings. And uh, that is a message that, to a great degree, still impacts me today. And it certainly impacted me in growing up and, and in my addiction. The other message that I got that definitely impacted me was that all I needed to do to be successful and, and to be happy in life was uh, to perform well to look good. 
And uh, that was an incredible message for me. And I looked so good, I looked myself nearly dead right into treatment uh, some 29 years after I was born and started to get that, that message. But those were two messages that really impacted my, my life. I didn't take a drug until I was 12 years old. And um, <laughs> that's when I started using. And the reason I took that drug, which was uh, Darvon, was because I had migraine headaches. And my mother had migraine headaches, and I thought that's what I was supposed to do, take a, pe take a chemical when I hurt. And uh, that was a message that impacted my life, too, very, very substantially. But what was different about the way my mom took Darvon and the way I took Darvon was when she had a headache, she took one or two. When I was 12 years old and I had a headache and I went to the medicine cabinet and opened the uh, cabinet and found the Darvon, I took four, first time I ever used. And that's the story of my life. I mean, if one's good, then you can bet your ass 10 or 20 is a heck of a lot better. And um, I live that way, and sometimes today I still live that way. Uh, balance is, is something that I assume I will be seeking and striving uh, all through my recovery because I sure hadn't attained it yet, although things do, things do get a little bit better. But that was the first time I used. I, uh, I went from Darvon to alcohol and from alcohol to pot and from pot to injecting uh, amphetamines, cocaine, heroin, and anything else that could be broken down and uh, put in a syringe and put into my vein. And I did that in a relatively short period of time. When I started using, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't cool to use. I, I never felt that I used drugs or drank alcohol as a result of peer pressure. And the kids I work with today generally start using because of that. I used to be different. I always thought I was different, and I kind of like being different. And I like the challenge, and I like an adventure. I am, I am the kind of person that if there is a mud puddle in front of me and somebody says, don't step in that, go around, you can bet I will step right in it to find out just how deep it is and what will happen. And um, I, liked, I liked the challenge. I liked the adventure because where I grew up, people weren't using drugs. Uh, it was not something that, that was known. It was not something like today where every time you turn on the TV, you see an ad for a treatment center or, or, or something about alcohol and, and drugs. And I saw it as a real adventure, and I was bored. And I think that's why I started using I think that's what uh, uh, triggered me into taking those chemicals. I don't think that's why I continued using, and I don't think that that... Uh, uh, simple boredom is what made my chemical use the way that it was over the years that it took place. I believe today that, that I was born with the disease of addiction, and there are little things that I do remember in my childhood that point that out to me, that, uh, you know, the addiction was there before I ever even took that first chemical at age 12. When I was 15, I was smoking pot on a regular basis, and I was being cool. And I found that what I thought was the answer to all of my problems. And my problems, I really don't think, were anything out of the ordinary. I think they were pretty typical uh, adolescent sorts of, of uh, difficulties, conflicts. But I felt like they were different. I felt like, and I remember this, I felt like at that time that I was the only one that hurt as bad as I hurt. I never told anybody that, never would have entered my mind to show anybody that or to express that. But in looking back, I know I felt that way. And I know that uh, pot 
and alcohol, particularly in combination, made me feel different, and they made me feel better. They didn't make me feel a part of. I, I was not uh, using chemicals to be a part of a group or didn't think that I was, and I hear a lot of people talk about that. Uh, I was simply using them because they were there and because I liked what they did to me. Uh, somebody once said if, if he had a mountain of cocaine in his backyard, he'd go out and he'd use it and he'd use it all just because it was there. And that's as about as much explanation as why I took what I took for the years that I, I took them. I remember real clearly the first time I ever injected amphetamines, and I remember thinking that this was the end all. This was it. I had never seen anybody inject drugs. I had never read anything about it. I didn't even know people did it. I was dealing dope in my high school, and I went over to these guys' house to uh, pick up some acid and uh, some pot to sell, and they were shooting speed, and they asked me if I'd like to, uh, to shoot some speed. And I thought with a great deal of intensity and gave this a lot of thought for probably all of 30 seconds and said, oh, hell, why not? And I did, and I remember that feeling today uh, 20 years later, 20, over 20 years later, uh, and I remember exactly what it felt like. And I remember saying, this is my life, this is my love. I will take this drug till the day I die. And I did that for a number of years. I felt that way about a lot of drugs, but I never felt that way uh, as much as I did with cocaine. And cocaine was my drug of choice. It was not the drug that I used the most of. The drugs I used the most of were alcohol and marijuana, and I used them on a daily basis since I began uh, using. The problem was I added a few others along the way. I got caught real quickly. I got into trouble within three months of my first injection. I was breaking into drugstores. I had serum hepatitis. I ran away from home. I'd been arrested, and my parents had me hospitalized and committed in an adult psychiatric uh, uh, facility at the University of Arkansas Medical Science Campus. And I had a ball there. I had a real ball there. I mean, I was 16 years old. Uh, I was obviously not responsible for anything that I had done because I was locked up in a nut ward. And I was their first adolescent, and I was their first drug abuser, and I felt like after um, a few short weeks there that I ran that unit. And I really had a good time. First time I was there, I convinced them very quickly that I had simply fallen in with the wrong crowd, and, uh, you know, I would never, never use these nasty drugs again, of course, and they let me go. I found my way back there within a mere 36 hours after I took some 25 tabs of LSD, smoked a lot of marijuana, drank a lot of Bally High, um, this early 70s, remember, and um, uh, went right back to the hospital and didn't leave for quite some time. I had three hospitalizations, psychiatric hospitalizations, my senior year in high school, so I didn't go to school a lot. I took uh, my senior uh, final exams in the seclusion room in this uh, psychiatric uh, uh, hospital, and I used drugs in this psychiatric hospital. The third time I went back, I was in an acute paranoid amphetamine uh, psychosis, and uh, I really was crazy. However, what they thought I was was paranoid schizophrenic, so I got put on a lot of medications like uh, Thorazine and Melaril and some antidepressants and all sorts of things. Um, and I was on those medications uh, until I got out of the hospital and heavily got back into drugs again, and then I had to stop them because I was concerned about side effects those chemicals <laughs> might have with the alcohol and the uh, drugs that, that I was uh, taking. I was in a halfway house uh, some 20 years ago, and this was a, 
This was a halfway house for um, uh, chronic schizophrenics, um, uh, people that, that did things like darn socks down at the Salvation Army. And I had come through a rehab program, and I was the first person that the Arkansas State Rehab uh, sent to school, sent to college. And I'm real, real grateful to rehab because they helped me through college and they helped me into medical school and I continued to do drugs the entire time. Um, so I had that experience very early on. Now the only thing all this stuff taught me was that I needed to cover up my drug use a little bit better. That people, it became very clear to me that people were going to lock me up if they knew that I was taking these chemicals and I did not care to be locked up for the rest of my life. See, I'd, I'd wanted to be a doctor for a long time, uh, ever since I can, can remember as, as a child. And I grew up with a real Marcus Welby, uh, Ben Kildare image of what it was like to be a doctor. Uh, needless to say, that changed when I got into uh, uh, medical school, but that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I knew I was going to do. When I was on that psychiatric ward as an adolescent, I made a resolution that one day I'd be back there and I would be running that psychiatric ward. I made a resolution that I wanted to be a psychiatrist, that that was the kind of doctor that I wanted to be. So those hospitalizations, nobody ever said anything to me during those hospitalizations that, uh, uh, you know, that I might be a drug addict. I mean, teenagers weren't drug addicts back then or alcoholics. Uh, there was no N.A. Uh, there was A.A., but I sure didn't belong there. And um, nobody else thought I belonged there um, Either. I doubt that it would have made, quite frankly, a lot of difference if anybody had said anything to me along those lines, but uh, no one did. Those hospitalizations taught me to cover up and to be a master manipulator and a master con, and that's what I did, and I did that for uh, the next 13 to 14 years of my life, and I did it real well, and I did it so well that I almost ended up in a grave because of it. I never entered my mind to stop using drugs or drinking. Uh, it was just that that wasn't part of the agenda. From the time that I first injected a drug, I felt like I took drugs the way I live and breathe. I felt like from the very first time that I injected a chemical that I was born to shoot dope. And I didn't know anything about this being a genetic uh, uh, disease, biochemical disease that at that point in time, that was just something I knew, and I knew that as well as I know I'm standing here today, that I was born to shoot dope. And I guess I was, and I guess everything that I have learned since then has told me that, yes, I was born that way. Uh, someone was talking uh, earlier about there being a purpose in everything that happens to us, and I believe that today. I do believe what the big book says when it says that nothing but nothing happens in this, on this earth without a God and without some kind of purpose. Now, I, too, don't always know what that purpose is. I don't know why I had to go through what I had to go through, uh, other than the fact that I'm real stubborn and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, and most of us sitting in these rooms have to go through a lot more, obviously, than uh, normal people would. To me, that's the insanity of the disease, continuing to repeat the same behaviors and expecting different results. And I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I did that. And it did not get any better. But I cleaned up my act. I decided that I had to look good. I had to look real good because I didn't think they were going to let me in medical school if they knew I was shooting dope. I was real smart. And I did put that together. Um, so I looked real good. And I went back home. 
and I started shooting dope again, but I covered it up. And I had a lot of experiences happen from uh, drugstore burglaries, uh, uh, people around me that uh, were being killed and were dying. Um, I had a number of things that went on during my late adolescence and uh, when I was in my early 20s that I look back on and, uh, and today it's, you know, today it's not difficult for me to see the, the total, utter insanity of all of this. Then I knew nothing else. I mean, I'd been using drugs since I was 12 and by the time I ended up in treatment I had used drugs on a daily basis so, and alcohol over half my life so I knew nothing else. Uh, I didn't know that it could be different, and for a long time, as crazy as it was, I loved what I was doing. Um, I loved everything, even the consequences, and that's the insanity of it. You know how you just accept that these things happen, uh, that, you know, that you're going to throw up, that uh, you may throw up on somebody you didn't intend to throw up on. Um, you know, you may get arrested, you may have wrecks, uh, that, that these kinds of things are going to happen. And you become willing to pay the price to get the high. And I was very willing to pay the price to get the high. And I paid a high price time after time after time, as most of us uh, do in here. But I, I uh, started using drugs again, and my parents, you know, they'd had a little psychotherapy at this point, and the, the shrink had told them that, uh, that if, I was using, if I started using drugs again, that they ought to ask me to leave the home. He didn't tell him not to enable me. He didn't use those words specifically. But he got the same idea across. And when my parents became aware that I was using drugs again, um, because that's what they were concerned about. My parents and my family were never concerned that I drank and smoked marijuana. They didn't like the idea that I smoked pot. But, I mean, alcohol, you know, everybody drinks alcohol. That's okay. So they weren't real concerned about that, although that, honestly, that and pot were the two drugs that I consumed the most frequently and on the, on the most regular, regular basis. They were concerned if I was putting a needle in my arm. And they became aware that this was uh, happening again, and they asked me to leave the house. It took me about two hours to convince them that my problem was them. And if they had been better parents and were more understanding, and if they were aware of how times were changing, then I wouldn't have the problems that I had. So what they did was they let me move into one of the duplex apartments that they owned. They continued to support me. I got out of the house three blocks away, would come home to eat dinner when I got hungry. Uh, they paid my rent. They paid my bills. My aunt bought me groceries. And I continued to shoot drugs and drink alcohol for uh, a number of years after that until I moved to go to medical school. So I simply conned my way out of that. And I told them that I wouldn't use anymore. And they wanted to believe that, so they did for quite a while. I um, uh, went on into pre-med in college. I didn't go a lot. I felt like classes were sort of beneath me. I mean, they were really... You know, they were really not the essence of, of life. Uh, copying, scamming, uh, being involved in everything that you're involved in uh, when you're an alcoholic and, and involved also in illicit drug use was the essence of, of my life. So classes tend to interfere with that uh, a little bit. So I'd like show up for tests and things like that. However, I looked good and I got good jobs and I made straight A's and uh, people thought I was doing real well and that I'd gotten over my problems as an adolescent. I uh, applied to medical school my junior year of college, and the reason I applied my junior year was because, see, I'm applying to the medical school where I had been hospitalized as an adolescent for paranoid schizophrenia and drug abuse. 
So I felt like it was going to be necessary to convince these people of my sincerity and that I was doing well and that I was really very interested in, in becoming uh, a doctor. I was an alternate that year, and the next year uh, when I graduated from, from college, I was accepted into medical school. Medical school was in Arkansas, and I had been living with another drug addict. We met, and our courtship really was uh, founded on uh, ripping off drug stores together. And um, we decided, well, actually, my parents decided for us, they instructed me that they were not going to allow me to live in sin and go off to medical school to be a great doctor. So we had to get married because of that. So uh, we got married. We had a garage sale. We packed up. We made some $450 on uh, the garage sale, drove to Little Rock for me to become a doctor, and that night spent all of that money on Demerol, and that's how I entered uh, medical school. Obviously, I made it through medical school. Sometimes I think I don't know how, and then I immediately am followed with the thought of uh, uh, nothing but the grace of God could have gotten me through everything that I went through and still be alive today, let alone be sober. The same things that had been happening to me continued to happen to me. I have two real clear memories of what it was like. And I like to keep those memories because they tell me for me how bad it can get. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I was going to school and I was making straight A's and I was working in hospitals and I was looking real good. On the other hand, I would be at home at night or early in the morning and I would be shooting so much cocaine and amphetamines that when it was just barely light outside, I wouldn't know whether the sun was coming up or just going down. And it was like that for a long time, for a, for a lot of years. How I was able to function during the day, I don't know, because that's what it was like when I was at home. I have another real clear memory. Uh, when I was, I was involved in, in uh, selling a lot of, of drugs, and I was uh, extremely uh, paranoid. And what would happen is I'd sit at home and I'd drink and I'd shoot dope and I'd sit in my back room with uh, and glued in front of a CB radio waiting for the cops to come and get me because I knew they were all out to get me. Part of that was delusional. Part of that was very true because this was a fairly small town at that point in time. I had towels and uh, blankets taped all around my windows and under the cracks of my doors. Uh, not real sure why. Um, and I had extra padlocks, and I would sit there with a sawed-off shotgun on my lap waiting for someone to come and get me. I firmly believe that it is by the grace of God that no one walked in in those times because I uh, certainly can't say what would have happened, but uh, there are many, many instances in my drinking and using that if you had gotten in the way, I don't think I would have hesitated to have picked up that gun, and I am very, very grateful that I never had to uh, uh, do that. But that's what it was like. And that's what it was like in uh, medical school. And I looked good in medical school. I looked real good. Uh, I made real good grades. Uh, I did real well. This was what I'd always wanted to be. There were only two things in my life that mattered, medicine and drugs, and that was it. When I was a sophomore in medical school, I overdosed on heroin. And uh, I had a, a cardiac uh, respiratory arrest. And had it not been for the junkie that I was with, that he had it not been that he knew CPR and uh, could keep me alive until I came or two, 
I assume that I would not be standing up here. What I remember is going to pick up some new heroin that had just come into town for my husband and I. And uh, I got there, and uh, this friend of mine that had it for me told me that it was much, much stronger than what we had, had been uh, doing. And I had enough for about four hits for my husband and I. And this friend of mine walked out of the room, and I sat there, and I put all that in a spoon and, and broke it down, all of that. And I injected it. Now, I was in medical school, and I grew up with the PDR. I could have taught my pharmacology classes by the time that, that I was a sophomore in, in medical school. Part of me had to have known that that was entirely too much for me to take. Part of me just didn't give a damn. I'm not aware that I was consciously trying to, to kill myself any more than I had been for a number of years before that and all the dangerous situations that I had put myself in. The next thing I remember is some four hours later when I came to on the bed. And this friend, his name was John, he was screaming at me uh, some obscenities and didn't I know what had happened. He said I had just overdosed, that he had been pumping on my chest and breathing for me for hours and uh, get up, he was taking me home. And I was, <laughs> it's not what you expect someone to do at your house. And I remember looking up at him, setting up, saying, you're crazy, John. That couldn't happen to me. Uh, that's the power of denial. And I didn't really believe that that had happened to me. I knew I felt like hell, but uh, I didn't believe that that had happened to me. He took me home, and I was sick for uh, the next week, really sick. There was an unwritten code between the people that I did drugs with and myself, which was, if anything happens, you don't take me nowhere because I am in medical school. I am going to become a doctor. No one can know about this. Uh, I will simply die before I end up in an emergency room. Um, and uh, that was respected, fortunately or unfortunately. Uh, at that time. So no one else ever found out about that. I had been shooting drugs about nine years at that point and drinking uh, for several years longer than that. And that was the first time in my life that it dawned on to me that I used drugs in a slightly different way than other people. <laughs> um, but, you know, I didn't think I needed to stop. I thought briefly about cutting back, and I did not inject any drugs during that time. I did take pills orally, I did drink, and I did smoke dope. Uh, and I was physically e extremely uh, sick. But that was the first time after all those years and all the things that had happened to me that I thought that uh, something was a little different about the way I took drugs. I continued to look good, though, when I had to be around y'all. You know, when I had to be around other people, when I had to perform, I performed. And I performed real well. I performed on through medical school. I performed right through my first husband, and I had to get a divorce from him because his drug addiction got so out of hand. And, um, you, know, I, I was, you know, I was trying to be a great doctor, and I just couldn't have these kinds of things happening to me. So we were divorced when I was a junior in um, uh, medical school. I turned right around in a very short period of time, and I married my pharmacology professor. Now... And I have a sponsor who says, you know, I've heard about guarding your supply, but marrying your pharmacology professor is simply ridiculous. This is what I did, and I continued to use throughout all of that time. I graduated in the top ten in um, uh, my medical school class. 
I uh, won several awards my senior year, and one of them was really interesting. I, w I won the uh, Outstanding Medical Student Award for research from one of the largest chemical companies in this country. <laughs> and uh, it was phenomenal because when I, when I tell what, what happened, it was, it was uh, you know, I like, I like to say that little were they aware of my own personal research that I'd been conducting for a number of, of years. But I went on, did an internship, and... Uh, uh, did my internship and in, in, uh, did a flexible internship, basically medicine and, and surgery, because I was really trying to decide between orthopedic surgery and psychiatry. That's how insane I was at, at this point. Uh, although I'd made this vow, you know, that I was going to go back and I was going to be a psychiatrist. I really loved surgery and I really loved orthopedic surgery. Uh, I did not go into orthopedics. I, I went into psychiatry, and probably the underlying reason was because if I had gone in to another medical field or a surgical field, the access to drugs would have been even more incredible than it was. And my access to drugs was incredible as it was. I had 10-plus uh, oh, years of street connections at that point. Uh, I got that magic little license as soon as they uh, put Martha A. Morrison M. Deity on my uh, certificate so I could write my own. The drug reps loved me and uh, would give me whatever chemicals I so desired. And, um, you know, I had enough availability as it was. And I think there was something in retrospect very protective about me going into psychiatry and not being around a lot of uh, narcotics um, and, and other chemicals. Plus, I had made that vow a number of years ago that that's what I, I wanted to do, that I, I wanted to be uh, uh, a psychiatrist. I, uh, I was selected as the best intern of the year, and I spoke to the incoming uh, intern class after I completed my intern year at around 8 o'clock in the morning, loaded on codeine, Valium, and a few scotches uh, about what it meant to be a doctor and uh, to carry out the responsibilities uh, it's your basic Marcus Welby type of uh, speech because I still had those ideas and I was still looking real good. Um, it really continued to go downhill personally. Uh, Jack said last night something about uh, uh, it's better to go out in the gutter than bring the gutter home. And I brought the gutter home through two marriages and my family and everyone basically who knew me and was involved in me. And I believe what he says is true. I didn't go out into the gutter until it was too late because I'd already brought the damn thing home. Um, and that's what it was like at home. It was practically any kind of home life was practically non-existence and I, non-existent and I had nothing. I had nothing but my drugs and my career and I excelled at both. I took more drugs and I looked better. I looked as good as I could. Uh, uh, as an in, as in medical school, as an intern, and uh, certainly as a resident. I became the local alcohol and drug uh, expert, sort of, because I was treating all these people that came into the state system. And I, you know, I used to see these drunks come in, and I'd think, God, if these people could only use drugs the way I did, you know, then they wouldn't be locked up in the state hospital. Uh, I'd give get grand rounds on uh, drugs. Um, I... Uh, uh, taught the substance abuse courses for the uh, medical students for several years. Uh, and I taught what I had been taught, that drug abuse and alcoholism were, alcoholism were symptoms of underlying pathology. And I never once thought that any of those things uh, applied to me because I looked so good uh, during the day. It got really bad the last year of my residency. 
And what happened was I dropped about 60 pounds. I was using and had been using 12 different drugs, including alcohol, on a daily basis for some time. Um, I uh, uh, had gotten extremely depressed. I had gotten very suicidal. I had left my home and uh, was uh, living out of my car for a while and still working and uh, still looking very good at work. I went to my residency director and I said, I've got to quit. I think I'm killing all my patients. This is how good I was looking, okay? Uh, I think I'm killing all my patients. And he looked at me and he said, well, you can't. You're the best we've got. Now, I'm not sure if that says anything about the quality of the other people or if that says how good I thought I was was looking. I was working uh, incredible hours because I was a workaholic, too, and because I had nothing left for my self-esteem to be built on other than what how I looked at work and what you people said to me about how good I was doing. Because I, above everyone else, knew what I was doing at home away from work and how much I was doing and how awful all those things were that I was doing. I never, I never took drugs from my patients and I never stole drugs from the hospital. Now, the reason I can stand up here and say that very righteously is because those were the two things that I said I would never do and I wouldn't have a problem if I didn't do those. Now, I did everything else do that. So I didn't think that that was a problem, that drugs and alcohol were a problem for me. I was a psychiatrist and I knew I was crazy because it got to the point that I was hallucinating, that I was aware of the kinds of delusional ideation that I was having, that I knew how depressed that I was. And my residency director sent me to a psychiatrist. This was supposed to be the best psychiatrist in the uh, state. You have to understand at this time that I am back running the psychiatric ward where I had been hospitalized as an adolescent. And um, uh, I am now having to go see the psychiatrist who had been my chief resident when I was a student on that psychiatric ward. This psychiatrist thought that I was manic depressive and I was put on a number of medications. I told this psychiatrist the drugs that I had been taking. And we'd sit there and we'd talk about how I felt about my mother and how I felt about my husband. And I gained a tremendous amount of insight psychodynamically, and I used more drugs. Um, I, I, too, am not one to blame psychiatrists in any way. I believe this person did the best he could with what he had. And I believe simply that the state of the art was such that there weren't very damn many people who knew what they were doing with regard to alcoholism and, and drug addiction. This man tried to commit me because he knew I was suicidal, and I was. And I looked him right in the eye, and I said, go right ahead and try. How much luck do you think you'll have with my reputation and walked out of his office? And that was true. Um, you see, I felt like I knew as much as anybody in the state about alcohol and drugs, and I probably did, but I had no idea what to do for myself. I felt like I was dying for months before I came into treatment. In fact, I knew I was. I was living a very reverse sort of one day at a time uh, philosophy. I was carrying a prescription for Dilaudid and a syringe in my purse at work because if it got too bad that day, I would just kill myself and that's how I would do it with a, a narcotic uh, overdose. 
I was intervened on. Somebody reached out to help me, and I didn't ask them to help me. And after the first time they intervened on me, I thanked them politely and sent them on their way and told them that I was not a drug addict, that my reputation spoke for itself. <laughs> These two people were uh, recovered. They uh, were members of a committee in Arkansas because there was no board or impaired physicians program or anything at that time. And they came to me and they said, we know what you're doing and we know why you're doing it. And you need to go to a place in Smyrna, Georgia, and meet a man named Doug Talbot who directs a program for disabled doctors. All right, all I could see was a bunch of doctors in wheelchairs that were blind and deaf in this program, and I thought, that is not for me. I sent these men merrily on their way, and they came back. And when they came back, I made them meet me at a local bar so I could drink while they were telling me about this program. You see, at this point, I knew it was over. I mean, these people had come to me, and the jig was up. They knew what I was doing, and I didn't think anybody knew what I was doing. I had been suicidal for months. I couldn't take it. I was so tired. I was having blackouts all of the time. I was overdosing right and left. I was having car wrecks. Everything in the world was happening to me. I was having knockdown, drag-out fights, what little time I spent uh, at home. And I couldn't, I couldn't keep it up anymore. I simply couldn't keep it up anymore. Uh, I tried to quit work. I told them they could have my medical license. I told them that I'd been putting one over on the DEA because I'd been forging prescriptions since I was 16, and I really didn't give a damn if they took my license uh, away. So none of that was the leverage for me. The leverage for me was I couldn't take enough drugs anymore to stop the pain. And that purely and simply was it. I was using an ungodly quantity of drugs. I was drinking an ungodly amount. And I couldn't get enough in me to stop the way that I was feeling. And I knew that there was no other alternative than dying. I knew that. I knew that to the bottom of my soul. And when these men came to talk to me, I knew what they said was true, even though it would have been, it was quite a while after that before I would admit it. I knew that it was true. I uh, basically disappeared from Arkansas at that point because what I decided was I could kill myself in Georgia easier than Arkansas. I don't know anybody there. I won't be as much strain on everybody and my parents. And I bought a one-way ticket to Smyrna, Georgia and Ridgeview Institute and the Disabled Doctors Program, <laughs> not having the faintest idea what AA was other than that's where you alcoholics went. Um, and that's where I referred to you when you came to see me in the state hospital, not having the faintest idea what treatment was, not having the faintest idea what was wrong with me, because I figured, what the hell, I haven't got anything to lose. I think, and I think um, from what I've been told, that I probably would have been dead in a couple of more weeks. I don't think I had any more time than that with the kind of things that were, were happening to me. I walked into Ridgeview Institute. I told them that I had a uh, small problem shooting drugs, but I had no intention of not drinking and uh, not smoking pot. They wrote on my chart that I was an alcoholic, and I was horrified. I saw it, and I saw that they'd said that I was an alcoholic, and I could not believe that these people thought that I was an alcoholic. They told me I was going to have to take an abuse, and I was not going to ever be able to use drugs again. And uh, that was like water rolling off a duck's back. Uh, you know, that was just uncomprehendable to me. Uh, 
Thirty-six hours later were the first 36 hours that I had been chemically free except for detox medications in uh, 17 years. And I walked out on the beautiful wooded trails of, of Ridgeview and put my belt around my neck and tried to hang myself from a branch of uh, a tree. I wrote a note to my best friend and I said a prayer to uh, uh, God as I understood him at that point in time, asking him to forgive me. I passed out and I woke up laying in the, in the leaves and apparently the knot that I had tied my belt with had slipped. I got up and started to walk back and a couple of people from the cottage found me and took me back up to the unit and, uh, and I just lost it. Uh, I totally lost it. I, um, um, you know, I'd, I'd been suicidal for all these months and I, I knew how I was going to die and it wasn't going to be by putting a rope around my neck. Uh, that, that to me was insane. That instance was insane and I could see that. This is when I met Dr. Talbot and he came in and they were going to commit me to the psychiatric cottage and I couldn't understand why just because I had made a small suicidal gesture. And because, see, I demanded to leave. I knew that this place was not for me because I knew that I could not live using drugs anymore and I knew at that point in time that I could not live without them. And I knew that to the bottom of my heart. And that was the most incredible agony, that and the loneliness that I had experienced for so long. I did not leave. I was told I had no alternative. And I really didn't. I didn't have anywhere to go. So I ended up on the psychiatric ward. And I walked in over there, you know, on suicide precautions, plastic spoons, forks, all this sort of thing. And it was very difficult for me to after all this, even get my words together. And somebody said, uh, hi, what's your name and what do you do? And I looked at this patient, this um, um, fellow inmate, and I said, mustering everything I could, I said, my name's Martha and I'm a psychiatrist. <clears throat> and this patient said, oh, yeah, see him? He thinks he's Napoleon. <laughs> and I thought... All I could think of was one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'm locked up in a nut ward 800 miles from home. I don't know anybody, and I don't have my drugs. And that was the ultimate agony again. I went, um, I went through the program. I had a lot of things happen to me. I had some medical emergencies. I had a rather long period of uh, withdrawal. You know, first they called it primary withdrawal, and then they called it secondary withdrawal. And then I guess it got to be something like tertiary withdrawal as this continued to drag out. But I was nuts. I was extremely organic. I couldn't do a damn thing. And I'd always been, I'd always prided myself on being very quick. I was so quick in the impaired professional program that I did double time in every phase. And I breezed right through your basic four-month program in a mere nine months. And to this day, six years later, I have not left Ridgeview Institute. Uh, so I don't know if I'm in quaternary withdrawal or whatever. Um, um, I, I had a number of what we in the treatment field <laughs> refer to as major stresses during early recovery. And most, each of these just about damn near killed me. Um, I don't know whether the last six months of my active using or the first six months of my recovery were worse. I really don't. Now, I didn't use any drugs the first six months, but I had to feel everything that I had not felt for um, the previous 17 years. I was a successful resident in psychiatry, a little superstar, 
um, who on her best days after I was in treatment acted like I was uh, about 10 or 11 years old. And I had also what we now call and refer to as, uh, shall we say, repeated behavior problems during uh, um, uh, a lot of my, my treatment phase, during all of it, really. I, um, but there was one, one thing that happened to me. Doug T. believed in me. And he helped me understand what was going on with me. There were times that I felt this man was reading my mind, which, of course, made me more paranoid. I heard the disease concept, and I thought, my God, he has slides of my life up there. Um, you know, it, it started to fit, and it started to fit very gradually. I felt the first thing I was aware of feeling was guilt. And it was overwhelming. It was awesome. And I think that's why I tried to hang myself. I mean, I was a doctor and I had done all these things and I knew it better than you and anybody else what I had done. I then got pissed off and I acted out a lot of my anger because I had very few social graces when uh, I wasn't uh, drinking and using and just trying to learn how to live uh, at that early point in, in time. Uh, so I went through a lot of, of these kinds of, of um emotions and I had a lot of problems in treatment I had a lot of problems in the in the halfway house but people stuck by me and that's what this fellowship is because I hated myself when I came into treatment I deserved nothing I was the worst person in the world and uh, Doug and a number of other people stuck with me through that people in AA did people in our other fellowship did People in treatment loved me until I could love myself. They even locked me up to keep me from using drugs and drinking long enough for me to be able to begin to hear what you say, for me to begin to be able to have the cortical control not to do drugs and to go to meetings and to try to understand the steps of recovery. When I was six months abstinent, not sober, but abstinent, I had an experience. I was in one of the, the placements. I'd been in treatment a lot longer than everybody else. People were leaving. I was very depressed. Um, and I was being accused of still being dishonest and not giving up control and all those sorts of things that we talk about in, in treatment. And I went out on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. And I got down on my knees in the mud in the rain. And I... I prayed what I today call that naked prayer. I prayed something simply to the effect of, please, God, help me. Let me die or let me get better. I just couldn't take it any longer, not even clean. And a real strange thing happened. Uh, it stopped raining and the sun came out and there was a rainbow. And I, I really thought I'd finally gone off the deep end uh, with this experience. But you know what else happened? The compulsion to use drugs was lifted from me. And it has never come back since then. And I had lived virtually all my life before that wanting to do nothing really but take dope. And it, it, that was the first freedom that I knew from this program. And I also began to believe that there was some hope. I began to believe that I might be able to get well because I always thought before that what you said applied to you, but you didn't understand me because I was different. And you, keep, you would keep saying, keep coming back, it'll get better. And I see it get better for some of you, but I didn't see it get better for me. And I thought because I was different that it, it wasn't for me, that yes, it would work for you, but it wouldn't work for me. 
And I began to believe that God took care of me. And I began to believe that what had happened in my life had happened for a purpose and that what was going to continue to happen would happen for a purpose. I believe today that what happened on the Chattahoochee um, was an understanding for myself of the first three steps of this program. That I can't, that you can, that God can, and that y'all will, and God will if I'll just let you. And the, if I'll just let you was a real hard thing for me because I didn't ask anybody for help under any circumstances until I got tired of dying on a day-by-day basis, year after year after year. And that's what it took. Life has not been a bed of roses since that time. Uh, and I will celebrate my sixth birthday, September uh, 11th. It has been a hell of a lot better. Some of the circumstances have been worse, but I have gotten better. And I have gotten better, I think, purely from the grace of God and from what you people offer. And that's what fellowship is to me. That's what the message of this program is. The message is you can have a spiritual awakening. The message is not that you might. It is that this is the result of the above steps. That that is it. The message is the grace of God. Uh, The things that have happened in my life have been beyond my wildest dreams. Every opportunity in the world has uh, really uh, come, been made available to me. We created a fellowship. Uh, I went through that in addictionology. I was allowed to complete my last year in psychiatry at uh, Emory. I started working with the Impaired Professional Program. Then I started focusing with adolescents. Today I direct both an inpatient and an outpatient program uh, uh, for adolescents that that are chemically dependent and work with families. Uh, I love to be a part of this group. I'm active in uh, AMSOD. Uh, My personal life has changed dramatically. I've had a number of sponsors uh, since I've been sober. A couple I've fired and a couple have fired me. But um, I turned around when I left treatment and I asked Doug to be my sponsor, and he has been. And I'm not saying that I recommend that for other people because everybody always says, well, if you're a woman, you need to get a woman sponsor. Uh, All I can talk about is what has worked for me. And he is the only sponsor that I have survived and that has survived me in my sobriety. Um, And I turned right around also and married my sponsor's son, some years after I had had been sober. And uh, this has been one of the blessings of sobriety, a relationship with someone that is like no other relationship that I have, have ever had. I was married twice before, and it's very hard for me to dignify, even dignify those relationships as marriages. What I know today is totally different totally different. What I know in my interaction with other people today is totally different than what I used to know. The fellowship, the ability to to serve others, the ability to have friends, to love you. You loved me long before I was ever able to love you. Today I can love you. Now there are probably a few of you that I really wouldn't like if I got to know you, but I don't have to do that. I just have to love you. And I do. It's like Burns was saying earlier, I meet people all over the country in AA because I'm fortunate I get to travel and I get to go to meetings all over the country. And I I know people, even if I don't know them, 
I know them. I meet somebody that knows someone I know, and there's, there's that bond. Um, I know family love today like I have, have never known, both with my family with which I have married into and with my uh, original family. My whole life has changed. People told me when I came into recovery that all I had to do was stop using drugs, put as much energy into recovery as I did into getting drugs, and change my life 180 degrees. And that is all that I had to do. Fortunately, I didn't have to do that alone, and that is the great message. Every one of those steps says we. And all I knew before I got here was me, me, me. Today, I know what we is, what us means, what we can do. Now, I have the responsibility to do the footwork for me. But I, even I can't do that alone. I take what I ha- get from meetings so that I can live outside of those rooms because it's not hard for me to stay sober today in an AA meeting for an hour. What I still need to know how to do is maintain my spiritual condition on a daily basis so that I can live, not exist. I survived. I'm a hell of a survivor. No problem. But I didn't know a thing about living. My sponsors, the folks I met in treatment, you people in these meetings have taught me that. It was certainly nothing I gained because of my own accord. Uh, All I did and all I have done since I I first came into treatment was not use drugs, go to meetings, and try to apply the steps in my life. The longer I am sober, the more simple that becomes because I was my worst enemy. I tried to complicate everything. I do believe today that what I have is only a daily reprieve, and it is based solely on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I maintain that with prayer, with meditation, but primarily with being with you and being in meetings. One of the most important lessons I have learned is what the big book tells me, and that is that acceptance is the key to all my problems. I always thought you were my problem. I am my problem. If I am not the problem, there is no solution. The ability to know something about acceptance and to be able, if I will let myself do it, practice that in my life has given me another new freedom. It has shown me the way to a little bit of peace of mind, and it has given me some of an ability to comprehend what serenity is, and that's all I was ever looking for in every drink I took, every relationship I had, and every drug I injected. That was it, and that is what you have given me, and I believe that that is a message of the grace of God, and I am extremely grateful for that because I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be me, I wouldn't be alive, I wouldn't have anything, I wouldn't know you, I wouldn't know peace, I wouldn't know serenity, I wouldn't be able to love, I wouldn't be able to try to give some of that away if not for this program, for you people, and for the grace of God. There's one little thing that I want to close with, and some of you have have heard this, I know, it's a, it's a little poem called Footprints, and it's, it's sort of the story of my, my life, and it's, it's real special to me. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life there was only one set of footprints. 
You also notice that it happened to be the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you the most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my precious, precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Thank you. We are all the miracles of recovery. I love you and God bless you.